I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? <laughs> Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Michael Patton, and I am joined by Tim Kimberly here in the studio at Credo House. Uh, we got something special, a big surprise for a lot of you all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have not, uh, uh, well, people have been requesting quite a bit for something that we've had in the past, haven't had recently. Some of you guys are listening to this over the Theology Unplugged feed because we're pushing it through that feed just to give, regain awareness of the resurgence, the reboot of Converse with Scholars. We've changed the format of Converse with Scholars quite a bit just because due to the nature of the way it was before, but Converse with Scholars is part of our ministry where we try to introduce people to who we believe are important scholars in the evangelical world and sometimes in the broader Christian world mm-hmm. that uh, what we think are significant, that they need to be introduced to, that they need to start reading. People that you might not ordinarily come across just in your give-and-take day in a church, but that we really feel like you need to know about. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, I mean, that's what we're about here at Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is trying to make theology accessible. Mm-hmm. And so part of this is introdu- introducing scholars. And one of the hardest things, Tim, is whenever you become a Christian, whenever you begin to get involved in the world of study, you really don't know who to study. Yeah. And and you don't know who to trust, and there's just so many things out there. I remember whenever I first, back in 1994, whenever I decided, hey, I'm giving my life over to the Lord. I'm reading everything I have. I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. And that's what I literally did was read everything. If it had a cross on the book or it said Jesus, I was reading it. And I got thoroughly confused after a while. Oh, sure. But what we're trying to do here, folks, is introduce you to the best, what we believe in the best in Christian scholarship. And today we've got a very special guest with us uh, who has just published a book called Is God a Moral Monster? Now, we would have Paul on either way. We have had him on before. His name is Paul Copan, and some of you uh, involved with our ministry are thoroughly familiar with the name because he blogs with us uh, very often. He also has been on Converse with Scholars before, and we've mentioned, mentioned him before numerous times, probably on Theology Unplugged or even in my own blogs. So uh, we're happy to introduce Paul Copan. He is the philosophy teacher at uh, and ethics teacher at West Palm Beach, or at Palm Beach, sorry, West Palm Beach, wouldn't be it, but Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida, author of lots of books, lots of books that we've interviewed him on before, and also, as I said, been on Converse with Scholars before. Paul, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Paul, uh, just assuming that a lot of the people that are listening to this may not be quite familiar with you, tell us just a little bit about your, you and your family, uh, personal life. Okay. Uh, I grew up in a pastor's home, uh, six siblings uh, of mine, and uh, just have had a background in biblical studies and theology as well as philosophy. Uh, went to Columbia International University, Trinity International University, and then Marquette University. And I'm very happily married to my wife, Jacqueline. We have six kids, uh, one of whom just came to us uh, in September. Uh, His name's Chris, and so he's just been a wonderful addition to our family, and uh, he's hoping to study philosophy next year. 
and uh, but we've got. Uh, no, wait a minute. You're going to have to pause right there. He, said he just came into our family, and he's getting ready to study philosophy next year. You're going to have to. That sounds that. like one of Michael Patton's kids there. Yeah. Well, he, uh, you know, Chris came to us out of an unfortunate situation, and his, uh, you know, we just met up. He had read some of my uh, my books and heard me speak, and we just kept in touch. And then just uh, his situation, his home situation, became very difficult, and so we told him if there's ever a problem, just to contact us. And so September 24th. Uh, this uh, then 18-year-old contacted uh, my wife, uh, Jackie, while uh, I was away speaking. And so uh, Jackie and my daughter, Johanna, went down to pick him up in Fort Lauderdale to bring him up to West Palm Beach. He's been living with, other, with us ever since. And so he's just part of our family now, and we're just delighted to have him. And he's well, just, wonderful. What's his name again? His name is Chris. Chris, welcome to the Copan family, if you're listening to that. He actually is. He's listening on the other line, but uh, he's keeping very quiet. <laughs> Good. Well, Chris, uh, I won't ask you any questions. Um, okay. Well, Paul, uh, I-, I met up with Paul back. Uh, gosh, it's been five or six years now at uh, ETS. Paul is just one of the nicest guys that you can come across. Great writer, wonderful philosopher, uh, very uh, down to earth Christian. Speaks to the issues, I think, in a very honest and compelling way. And the- his latest book is "God a Moral Monster." is something that is so incredibly needed within our society today. It is just dealing with those things that people are asking. And, Paul, just tell us why you chose this book. Why is God a moral monster? What does that mean? Well, uh, one of the, we'll talk about this in a moment, uh, one of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, probably the leading uh, spokesperson for atheism these days, uh, is a zoologist at Oxford University, and uh, he has uh, gone uh, very emotional uh, of late in his writings. Uh, his, his earlier writings were a little were more steady, and uh, but uh, his recent writings, along with a cluster of other atheists, have been very strongly emotional. And uh, and, and and he has gone after the jugular of Christianity, attacking the uh, the, the biblical conception of God, and calls him. A moral monster, and has a whole string of adjectives to uh, to describe God. You know, uh, megalomaniacal and genocidal, uh, filicidal, uh, etc. Just all sorts of uh, uh, of um, negative uh, descriptions of God. And so, uh, so I've actually taken Richard Dawkins' uh, moral monster description and uh, have kind of turned it around, and I'm actually responding to. Richard Dawkins and a lot of the new atheist uh, arguments against the Old Testament God, and have just again used that title to say, you know what, let's uh, let's hold on here, uh, let's actually examine those claims in detail. And what I try to do is look at these uh, these sorts of assertions, not only made by new atheists, but uh, but it seems that there has been a, a rising tide of criticisms launched, particularly at the Old Testament conception. Of God and seeing that as somehow you know, inconsistent with the New Testament understanding of God, uh, and also just plainly immoral uh, that this uh, God is not worthy of being worshipped because look at all of the 
sorts of things that he commands or does. And so that's the nature of the uh, theme that I'm taking up here. Well, before we get to the New Atheist, you know, you're right whenever you talk about this being something that is much more broad than just the New Atheist, though you respond to the New Atheist in this book, especially uh, Richard Dawkins and his claims. I was at my house uh, a couple of days ago and I had your book, which, by the way, was very difficult to get. I don't know if it's uh, out, uh, selling out uh, uh, quite uh quite frequently right now or not, but uh, it took us a while to get it. We had to wait for the publisher and wait for Amazon, so we had both of them coming our way, but it was sitting at my house, and my wife walked by it, and she said, now that's the book I need to read. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, this is just something that is very common, I think, with people who pick up their Bible and begin to read the Old Testament. They can very easily get confused about what God looks like, what God does in the Old Testament. And so for those who are struggling, for those who want to respond to atheists, but it's also for those people like me, like my wife, like all of us out there, that just these these are good questions and they need answers. Um, Tim? Yeah, and so we've mentioned these new atheists. Paul, would you mind just spending a little bit of time describing these people for those who aren't familiar with Dawkins and Hitchens and guys like that? Uh, who are these new atheists, and what's setting them apart from from perhaps uh, the old atheists, if you will? Well, a couple of things set them apart. Uh, for one thing, their arguments, their philosophical arguments are lousy. Uh, they don't really have much intellectual rigor and when it comes to philosophy of religion, uh, tackling some of the issues that a lot of thinkers, uh, philo- Christian philosophers, have been addressing over the years, over the millennia even, uh, you know, that they seem to be woefully ignorant of many of the basic issues. And when you read, say, somebody, one of the uh, new atheists, Daniel Dennett, for example, of Tufts University, uh, he's got a degree in philosophy, but he does not seem to uh, know some of the basics in philosophy of religion, so he asks the question, well, you know, if God made the universe, who made God? Some super-god? Uh, and who made that God? Some super-duper God? And some, you know, who made that God? Some super-duper-duper God? And, you know, goes on like that. I mean, just kind of silly sorts of questions that really miss the fundamental philosophical issues that... Uh, something eternal, something eternally existent or necessarily existent is not a contradiction in terms. In fact, we know that the universe began to exist a finite time ago. The universe is not eternal. So something like the God of the Bible makes perfect sense here, but, but, um, Daniel Dennett just makes a caricature of it and doesn't really address seriously some of these issues. And, and the same is true of Richard Dawkins, uh, at, uh, at Oxford, uh, and, uh, the, there are two others, Christopher Hitchens, uh, who who is uh, known for his political writings, but also has just launched out with vehemence against the uh, God of the Bible. Another one is Sam Harris. Uh, these are all best-selling authors, and so they are characterized typically by uh, a lot of intellectual weakness and uh, and flawed argumentation. Secondly, there's a lot of emotion and bluster that goes along with their argument. I mean, they're very good rhetorically. Uh, they like to throw their emotional barbs out and try to make, uh, you know, to, to score some rhetorical points. But when you look at the substance of their arguments, there's a lot seriously lacking in what they're saying. Uh, and so, and, and even their own atheist friends, uh, so to speak, or uh, atheist colleagues, acknowledge that there is serious weakness in their argumentation. In fact, Michael Roos, who teaches, uh, he's a philosopher of science at uh, at Florida International University 
and a prolific writer, uh, well-regarded in, in many circles. He endorsed a book by Alistair McGrath, the Christian theologian, uh, called The Dawkins Delusion, published by InterVarsity Press. And on the cover, uh, Michael Roos says this about Richard Dawkins. He says that Richard Dawkins makes me embarrassed to be an atheist. Mm. That's how bad his arguments are. And so, so that's the sort of thing that we're dealing with. But boy, these guys are selling books. Uh, you know, my wife asked me, Paul, when are you going to write your bestseller? You know, well, these guys are doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are doing it with, uh, you know, just one book after another. And it's having an influence in terms of shaping the popular perception of, 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 of who God, you know, of, of what the God of the Bible is all about and, uh, or not about. And, uh, and so it's important for us to respond to the flawed uh, posturing, the flawed uh, arguments and uh, caricatures uh, of the biblical God and try to address in a very serious-minded way that takes seriously the biblical context, both in its language as well as the ancient Near East and so forth, and tackle some of these issues with a greater serious-mindedness. I'm trying to write it at a popular level, uh, as popular level as I can, but there are some issues that you know, do cause people that are that we just need to take you know, with greater intellectual vigor. But I think if we do so, we'll be greatly rewarded as we uh, dig a bit deeper uh, into the bit more deeply into the biblical text, as well as the ancient Near East, and we'll find that there's a lot of illumination, uh, a lot of helpful uh, information that comes as we do this uh, deeper digging. And so I hope that this book will actually uh, hit the mark in terms of uh, showing people uh, a clearer way to think about some of these uh, difficult emotional uh, topics that are raised about the God of the Old Testament. Well, you know, it seems to be that the new atheist, from my, from from where I sit, it it is it is kind of a postmodern approach to atheism, to where they are appealing to the emotions uh, quite a bit more, like you said, and and it's just a whole different type of argumentation. Um, and, and I agree with you. It's it's this this idea that uh, they are putting forth doesn't seem to have the intellectual vigor, and they don't even try to. Uh, they don't even seem to be attempting that. But they do be. They they are, in some sense, I I, I say it from my end, manipulating. Uh, in order to create a, an emotional response, but they are also having an effect, quite a bit of an effect. From our standpoint here at the ministries, I'm dealing with people all the time who are dealing with their faith, who will come to us in confidence and say, hey, I'm just really struggling. You know, we're a ministry about belief. Uh, we sit here in Edmond, Oklahoma, at the Credo House, a, a house of belief, and we're having people, pastors, leaders, Sunday school teachers, uh, all of them not necessarily abandoning the faith. So if you ask, are people becoming atheists? If that's your end goal, are people becoming atheists? And you say, well, not really, not that much. Then you say, well, they're not having an effect then. That's just not true. Because these people are coming to me and they are, they are doubting at a more sincere, deeper level because of the effect of the new atheists. My sister, uh, Lindsay came to me not too long ago and said, this is really affecting me. The emotional appeal is affecting me at a deep level, and I need help. People are being affected by this a great deal, folks, and this is something that we need to really uh, grab a hold of and take seriously, not just ask whether people are becoming atheists, but whether or not they're uh, starting to chip away at your faith. There are specific arguments, Paul, that are brought up uh, regarding this issue. There are specific arguments that uh, uh, have to do with the God of the Old Testament. What are some of these, these arguments that you deal with in the book? 
Well, I try to deal with uh, a range of issues. I can't obviously can't go into a exhaustive, uh, detailed uh, discussion about all of the points that I would like to cover. Uh, maybe that'll come in volume two or something like that of this uh, of, of this uh, book series. Say, and but, that'll uh, be your bestseller, right? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe <laughs> so. Um, but the uh, you know, I, I try to deal with. You know, and I, I hit this very hard. Uh, I spent four chapters on the topic of the Canaanites and uh, and the common accusation made by the new atheists is that we see Canaanite genocide or ethnic cleansing. That's uh, you know, the loaded emotional term that's being used. And upon further scrutiny, it, it is so far from that. And you know, and again, what I tell people to do is look at the text itself. Uh, we don't have to, you know, come up with some fancy background to the Old Testament that we just completely have missed uh, when we're reading the Bible. But I'm saying, no, look at the Bible more closely, and you'll see that that is not going on at all. But, um, but so I spend four chapters on that particular topic, and the, in the more broader issue: does religion cause violence? And there's a lot of vagueness involved in that very question, and so I try to bring some clarity to that topic. I deal with, I have several chapters on the issue of slavery. I deal with that in the, you know, I deal with old, the issue of slavery in the Old Testament, and I argue that that's better rendered servitude rather than uh, slavery, which conjures up all sorts of uh, negative emotional uh, issues that uh, people just make all sorts of false associations with that word. Um, also, I deal with the topic of uh, harsh punishments. You know, it seems like there's some barbaric, um, crude uh, punishments that are meted out in the Old Testament. And so I, I look at that. You know, what about the topic? You know, what about the issue of polygamy? We see that in the scriptures, and a lot of people say, "Well, you know, how could God permit that sort of thing?" Or, or concubinage uh, seems like there are people, there are wives around for uh, sexual pleasure, and uh, you know, what what about that? Uh, you know, there are also issues of um, of uh, Abraham, you know, say Ab- God commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and other issues related to the, char- the character of God. I look at, you know, is God arrogant? I look at the topic, uh, you know, is God uh, jealous? Why, you know, how should we understand the jealousy of God? And so we look at some of these, you know, issues of divine character, and then we look at some of the, then I look at some of the, uh, some of the other issues related to, you know, not harsh punishments, kosher laws, and what do we make of those purity laws? You know, what about the, you know, you know, cleanness and uncleanness and and so forth? What about those foods that are prohibited uh, and the foods that are permitted? You know, why is that? Doesn't that seem arbitrary? And so I look at some of those, you know, seemingly strange from our perspective laws. And uh, and 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 mandates that are given uh, by the you know by God to the Israelites you know and try to help make sense of them by digging a little more deeply into the ancient Near East con- Near Eastern context um, and then I try to then I look at you know the big topics you know the treatment of women uh, in the you know in the Old Testament are, is there a, a negative view of women by the Old Testament writers uh, I look at the topic of you know as I said uh, slavery not only Old Testament but I also look at the New Testament because that's important because it's a different animal it's under the Roman Empire and you do have chattel or property slavery uh, and uh, and so I look at that uh, topic and, and bring clarity to that issue and then and of course the the issue of um, the Canaanites and then in the final section of the book 
uh, I look at the the issue of God and morality, and I argue that uh, that while people can know morality, even if they don't believe in God, the deeper question is how do human beings come to be moral beings in the first place? What gives us dignity and worth and rights and so forth? And I argue that the very uh, the very foundation that the atheists reject actually is the very uh, is the very basis. For you know, they're they're talking about you know, say human rights or human dignity or moral obligation. Uh, that we can't make sense of our own moral knowledge until we have a, fun, a fundamental metaphysical foundation for accounting for human rights and dignity as well as moral duties. Uh, and then in the last chapter, I talk about how you know, rather than seeing the Christian faith as being something that is destructive. Uh, something that is harmful. I look at how the Christian faith actually has brought remarkable change uh, for the better to humankind. Uh, that when people are living out their lives consistently in uh, under the, under Christ's rule in the kingdom of God, then we see dramatic change taking place in society. Women being elevated, uh, humans uh, receiving you know, humans, uh, you know, gov- governments uh, acknowledging that human beings have rights and dignity. Uh, the eradication of slavery and so forth. Now, I talk about all of those things and the significant gains that have been made in other ways uh, as a result of the influence of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, <clears throat> Paul's book we're talking about here, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the God of the Old Testament. It also has discussion questions at the back, folks. Uh, this would be great. It's got 20 sections of discussion questions. So if you have a small group, 20 weeks, or you can break it up two chapters a week and go through two sections, and that would make for a good 10-week study as well. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you including those questions in the back. One of the things that uh, I wanted to ask uh, on page, let's see here, I think it's on page 60, I think you deal with a very important issue that maybe we can answer a lot of these questions and, you know, kind of hit them one at a time, but you also deal with kind of a philosophy of looking at the Old Testament and trying to understand kind of the broad picture and not not get, uh, not get hold to too many assumptions. You, you uh, talk about it on page 60, which is the incremental steps towards ideal, and then you also talk about the is ought fallacy and in that you're trying to help people understand like uh, my wife whenever she was working at a bank one time she had a muslim guy who came up to her and talked about the old testament that's all he wanted to do was talk about the old testament and he would say the old testament has incest in it it has murder in it from from good guys and it has all of these things including slavery including uh the the um uh, odd laws that we have in the Old Testament. And Paul, you, you talk about these incremental, incremental steps towards ideal. What do you mean by ideal in these steps? Well, I think a helpful verse to put the Old Testament in context is what Jesus says with regard to divorce, but I think it applies to a number of other uh, you know, issues of legislation in the Old Testament. Uh, and that's Matthew 19:8, where uh, where Jesus says that Moses permitted divorce because because of the hardness of your hearts. Uh, that Jesus acknowledged that there were certain things in the law, in the law of Moses that were not ideal, but were permitted because of human fallenness, because of um, negative or inferior social structures and uh, moral arrangements in the you know, in the Old Testament uh, in the ancient Near East. And what you see is that God is bringing Israel uh, a remarkable way 
rising above the legislation and uh, mindset of the rest of the ancient Near East and pushing Israel, in a sense, back toward the ideals mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, where all human beings are equal because they've been made in the image of God, uh, where you know racism and ethnic uh, discrimination and so forth, all of those things that are, uh, that are uh, eliminated by the image of God, you know, God is pointing people back to them to get their bearings from the, from the way things were in the beginning. You also look at marriage and how God... Uh, you know, how God brings uh, Adam and Eve together, that the two become one flesh, that the ideal is lifelong, um, one flesh monogamous union between husband and wife, that this is the ideal. Uh, God puts up with some things that are inferior and mosaic uh, legislation uh, while moving people further toward the ideal or back to the roots uh, of the moral ideals. Uh, There is, in a sense, a putting up with of things that are inferior, that are not necessarily ideal. And so we shouldn't judge the Old Testament based on what is, uh, what is by its own acknowledgement, uh, you know, inferior and, in a sense, look at, and also looking toward a new covenant that is to come, uh, something that is greater, something that surpasses the old covenant under Moses. And so we see passages like, you know, Acts 17, where it says, previously God overlooked the times of ignorance and is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, or Romans 3.25, God demonstrated his righteousness in Christ, uh, though in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. There is a certain putting up with uh, certain inferior things that are going on, uh, say, in the Old Testament or before the time of Christ. And so we see uh, God moving people toward the ideal, and when we compare in the Old Testament, the, the Mosaic Law to the rest of the, to, to other ancient Near Eastern law codes, like the Code of Hammurabi and, and, and others, Assyrian law codes or Hittite law codes, we see that point for point virtually, there is a moral improvement in the Mosaic Law in comparison to the rest of the ancient Near Eastern legislations. You know, we, when you look at, say, the Code of Hammurabi in Babylon, uh, you have you know, amputations mentioned. You have you know, breasts, ears, noses cut off. Uh, you have you know, men being dragged around, uh, you know, a man being dragged around the f- in, in, a, in a field by cattle as a punishment. Uh, you have, uh, you know, if, if someone uh, does, uh, you know, commits a crime, you know, say maybe, you know, uh, you know commits adultery or rapes, then uh, that man's wife could be raped. Uh, you know that sort of thing that takes place, and you when you look at the biblical legislation, you see that there is a r- dramatic improvement uh, in the degree of punishment, uh, the harshness of the laws, and so forth. You know, if you're living in the ancient Near East and you're comparing law codes, you say, you know, get me to Israel quick. You know, that's really uh, the kind of contrast that you see when you look more closely at these ancient Near Eastern law codes. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, real interesting. What uh, I'm sure many people ask you uh, a lot of these questions from these chapters, but uh, one of them for sure, let's just pinpoint in one, does God allow for polygamy? What I argue is that um, in uh, in Leviticus 18.18, there is a prohibition against polygamy. Now, it comes in uh, in a passage... Which is which deals with uh, say incest laws, and then it shifts. And eighteen eighteen is actually a shift from incest to uh, to other um, sexual deviations. 
uh, and, and, you know, again, outside the family, but within Israel. And so what I argue is that the, uh, that Leviticus 18.18, and again, there's very good, just when you could look at the Hebrew text, even if you don't know Hebrew, you can actually see, as you, as you look at the similarities, uh, you know, up to verse 17 in Leviticus 18, and then you see 18, you see a noticeable textual shift that takes place there in the very structure. Uh, and so I argue that this is actually not dealing with uh, you know, a man who marries a woman and then his, uh, then the sister, but actually it's a fellow Israelite, a fellow female Israelite. That's the way that that term is also, that phrase is used, uh, a woman to her sister. Uh, it's a, and not a, not a biological sister, but actually a sister within Israel. And that is, uh, how it, that phrase is used. The same thing applies to a man to a man, uh, you know, the parallel in, in the Old Testament, that it's related, it's, it's not biological but actually deals with uh, those who are uh, brothers and sisters within Israel. And so I argue that that is the point. Now, is there polygamy that takes place? Well, sure, and it's, it's not as though God approves it. God, as I said earlier, puts up with it. And indeed, as you look at descriptions of the... Uh, as you look at descriptions of the ideal, for example, Genesis 2.24, uh, you notice the singular, uh, you know, that a man will cleave to his wife, as well as, uh, you know, you she'll, uh, you know, he'll leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is the ideal, and indeed, as you look at the scriptures, you see that biblical writers hope for better behavior, uh, that they, that polygamy, uh, you know, may have been tolerated, but it would have been perhaps more difficult to enforce uh, the, an anti-polygamy uh, passage like uh, Leviticus 18.18. 18. And it's interesting, too, that as we look at the Old Testament passages that relate to polygamy, they're very negatively construed, you know, from Lamech uh, in, in early, the early chapters of Genesis to Esau to, you know, Jacob, uh, David, and Solomon. You know, where we see God's ideal of monogamy ignored, we see strife, competition, disharmony, etc. So, uh, and it's interesting that in Deuteronomy 17, 70, 17, God warns the one who is most likely to be polygamous, namely Israel's king, uh, saying he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. And it's interesting, too, that God himself models his covenant love for his people um, through the expressing it in the ideal union of marital faithfulness between husband and wife without any outside competition, that this is the ideal. And so you see it uh, exemplified and illustrated in a number of different ways in the Old Testament. But again, Leviticus 18.18 18 is a linchpin verse that, that, prohibits, that prohibits polygamy. And uh, and I think the more we study that, and I go into a lot of detail in the text itself, saying that this ought to be our point uh, for looking at what the law of Moses has to say about polygamy, rather than looking at you know again the you know, we talked about the is ought thing. I didn't really elaborate on that a lot, but just because something is uh, you know done in Israel, that doesn't mean that therefore this means divine permission is being given by God for that to be carried out. So is does not equal ought. Just because something is described, that doesn't mean that it is being prescribed as well. And so that's why we need to avoid that kind of is-ought fallacy. If we see the way things are played out in Scripture, that therefore that means that that's the way that it ought to be, or that's the way that it's okay if you do that sort of thing.
Yeah, and, and people talk about the difference between prescriptive and descriptive is ought. It, it, it's just a, such a wonderful thing for us to be able to realize. And, folks, it's so important for us when we're reading through the Old Testament. And sometimes I think we just treat it as God's Word, which it is. But also we need to understand the development, how God's Word is is uh, given to us and, and the progressive revelation and how it's given. And that the perfection, while, the, while it is coming about and being shown, he's dealing with sinful people. So it's just a wonderful book, folks. It is... I just can't recommend it enough uh, for you guys to go out there and and pick up ten copies of this. Have have copies to be able to hand out because I, I think it was about four or five years ago. Whenever I was attending a conference and and one of the speakers said, within the next fifteen years, we will go through a couple of decades where apologetics, which means defending the faith, will be focused only upon how we defend God of the Old Testament because modern-day Marcionism is on the rise. Now, what is that, modern-day Marcionism? Marcion, this is nothing new, is it, Paul, Uh, concerning criticism of the God of the Old Testament because we had it in the 1st and 2nd century with Marcion who, who attempted to get rid of the Old Testament because he didn't like it. That's right. Yeah, he had that idea, well, that Old Testament God, you know, that God who you know, creates, that God who uh, gives those laws, that God who, uh, you know, commands to kill Canaanites and so forth, you know, you know, that's not the God of the New Testament, that's not the God of Jesus and so forth. So he has, so anything in the New Testament that, that, uh, that, you know, that supported, uh, you know, some of these key themes from the Old Testament that, that really gave a lot of, uh, you know, reinforcement to, uh, say, the, you know, what the Old Testament was talking about. Uh, you know, he mixed that from his, you know, his, his canon, uh, of scripture and, uh, and, and so whatever, you know, whatever connection the, the, uh, you know, Jesus has with the Old Testament, we've gotta, we've gotta sever that and, and make as clean a, as clean a, a, um, uh, cut off as possible so that Jesus is not tainted by that God of the Old Testament, that we need the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, rather than that that mean, nasty God of the Old Testament in, in, in his estimation. And, you know, again, folks, it's not about... It's not about whether, just whether or not you're dealing with these new atheists. It's it's about some of you guys out there who just have not picked up the Old Testament. You won't pick up the Old Testament. You don't read from it. You don't teach from it. You don't do your devotions from it because it does confuse you. And, and this is something that you need to you need to understand. This book is not just about answering questions. It's about giving you a way of interpreting and understanding the Old Testament. And folks, it's part of God's Word. I know that none of you or a lot of you that are listening to this would not claim to be Marcionists that, that you don't like you, you explicitly say, I don't believe the the Old Testament is inspired. I don't believe that it's really God. I just believe in Jesus, and that that Yahweh character in the Old Testament kind of scares me, and so you stay away from it. You're kind of acting like Marcionists whenever you do that, and, and we need to overcome that because part of our discipleship process, part of our understanding, part of the knowledge that God wants us to know in the counsel of his word is in the Old Testament, and so we need to read through the Old Testament. We need to understand the Old Testament. Interesting stories, yes. Confusing stories, yes, but Paul has done a great job in this book is God a moral monster making sense of the God of the Old Testament by just giving us a way to understand a lot of these things that will confuse you and I I don't know really uh, many stones that have not been uncovered Paul by your work here and I really appreciate it and appreciate what you have done here so thank you so much for taking the time to write this book very timely work Paul 
Well, thank you so much, Michael, and uh, appreciate your giving it a you know good plug. And I again, I do hope that uh, you know above all things that uh, that God's people will be encouraged through this, that their faith will be strengthened, and that uh, some of the faulty assumptions that a lot of non-Christians have with regard to to uh, Yahweh. Uh, to the the God, you know, the name of God in the Old Testament, that that will that this will be uh, that these will be cleared up as well. That the people will have a, a clearer understanding of what God is doing in the Scriptures and how uh, God is paving the way for the uh, the Redeemer of humankind, uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, uh, you know, the one who is to uh, to come and bring to fulfillment uh, all of those things that are uh, you know mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, that He is the uh, you know, the, the one toward whom those Old Testament scriptures point. Uh, and, and so I, I, I pray that this will be a, a book that helps point people to, uh, to Jesus Christ, who really helps to put all of these things uh, in the Old Testament into proper perspective. Amen. Amen, Paul. Thank you very much. Well, Tim, uh, this has been Converse with Scholars, and mm-hmm. this is the first time you've been on Converse with Scholars. It is, yeah, and I'm excited. Hopefully there'll be many more to come as yeah, Paul writes new 10, books. And you got your top ten works of archaeology, or top ten uh, archaeological finds. What's it called again? Biblical <laughs> Discoveries in Archaeology. <laughs> All right, well, your, your work on there. Again, Paul, thank you very much. Tim, thanks for joining us here in thank studio. You, Until next time, thank you for joining us, folks, that are getting this on the uh, on the blog. Uh, on iTunes, you can subscribe to Converse with Scholars or through the, um, uh, the Theology Unplugged feed. God bless you guys. Have a great day. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.